Our passage this morning is from Philippians 3, um, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sawyer. Good morning, City Church. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed in our hearts. We have gratitude for Jesus Christ's righteousness for us. Our mouths can claim nothing else but Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And we are so grateful for this truth. Spirit, I pray that you would help us uh, to understand your word, your good word, and that it would transform our hearts. That it would transform hearts that are stony right now and cold into warm flesh hearts that receive your love and grace. And even, even as we have been transformed and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son and when we still wrestle with the vestiges of I need to add to Christ's righteousness by whatever I do, whoever I am, will you bring us to the end of ourselves this morning? And as we've heard that we have the gift of repentance because of the work of Jesus Christ. We're so grateful this morning to be gathered as your people, to be the body of Christ. And we pray in the head, which is Christ, this prayer. Amen. Well, the question this morning, uh, as we read this text, um, we heard this word a few times, but the question is, what do you put your confidence in? What do you put your, what do you put your confidence in? Now, there's a there's a variety of ways that you can answer that question. Your, your confidence could be in another person. Confidence could be in money or security. It could be in your spouse. It could be even in your kids. 
Your confidence could be in the right job or the right school that you go to. Might be in your own intellect or wisdom. What do you have confidence in? And when we think about what we put our confidence in, we we always have to ask the question, why are we putting our confidence in those things? Because we put confidence in something to an end. There's always a reason why we desire to put our confidence in anything. So I I see a few reasons why we do this. I'm sure there are more. Uh, But for one, we, we place our confidence and trust to answer the question, who or what will save me? If you ask that question, who or what will save me, then, then you can find where your confidence is. And sometimes this doesn't have to be uh, overwhelmingly uh, theological or big. Uh, when I uh, did weather, I used to be a weatherman, uh, and when I did weather, people would ask me uh, before big events if they should cancel big outdoor events because of a threat of rain. And why would they do that? They, they had confidence that I was going to be able to save them from a ruined outdoor event that would be outside. Now, we can argue about the foolishness of putting your confidence in a weatherman. I think we've probably all tried that before. But this is what they, they were wanting to do. They, they wanted to find saving or salvation from having a ruined event. Maybe the, maybe the question reveals where we think life has meaning. What we have confidence in reveals where there is meaning. If, if a meaningful life is to live it up and drink and be merry for t- tomorrow we die, then you're going to put confidence in money or resources that's going to be able to allow you to live that lifestyle. But what about answering the question, what brings you right standing with God? What brings you right standing with God? If we're asking that question, then that too will reveal where we put our confidence. And that's exactly what this passage is addressing this morning. This is exactly what Paul is going for. Now, I just, I just said the, the, the words meaningful life just a few minutes ago. And, and if you're just joining us here, we are in the middle of our series in the book of Philippians. And we've been asking this question for the past several uh, weeks. What makes a meaningful life? What is a meaningful life? We're asking that question all the time. Whether or not we ask it out loud or we're pondering it in our heart, we are wanting to know, what is the point of life? Where could I put my confidence? What am I even doing here? What, what is the answer to the question, who will save me? What is the answer to the question is of, do I have right standing before God? And we are all in the search of meaningful confidence. Meaningful confidence. What is the sure thing in my life that I know will bring me fullness and hope both in this life and in the one to come? And that's the question we're going to hope to answer today. Now, the passage that Sawyer just read, Paul reminds the Philippians right off the bat, rejoice in the Lord. And this is a familiar theme in the book of Philippians. I'm going to talk more about this idea of rejoicing here in just a few more minutes Uh, But he quickly shifts in verse 2 and probably uses the strongest language he has used up to this point in this book. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the dogs and the evildoers that mutilate the flesh. And you might be asking the question, what in the world, Paul? What is making you so, so forceful and, and even agitated that he would speak this way? 
Well, he's, he's talking in this passage about uh, people that were known uh, as Judaizers. Judaizers were, were Christians. They were Jewish in, in their heritage. But what they were trying to do was uh, influence the Gentile Christians. And most of these believers in the city of Philippi were Gentile Christians. And what they were desiring for them to do is to be circumcised or to follow other parts of the ceremonial law in the Jewish faith in order to be validated as Christians. They said, this is how you are standing before God with righteousness. If you put a mark on your body, and if you follow these aspects of the law, then you will truly be saved. Now, there's, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not these Judaizers were actually in Philippi at this point. I think they probably weren't, just based on the letter as a whole. Uh, but I think Paul knows that this is always going to be a temptation and that the Judaizers were probably, if they weren't there yet, on their way. And so he wants to let the church know this is coming. And then he quickly reminds uh, the Philippians, basically uh, he reads his resume to them. He reminds them of his life before his conversion to Christ, all the Jewish accolades, how he would have put these Judaizers that he's warning them about, he would have put them to shame. He would have said, if you think these guys are good, look at all the things that I was, and look at all the things that I did. And then on the other side of it, he says, but now I know, now I know that all of this is loss. Now I know that all of this is rubbish. And that's what he says in and one of those quotable verses that we've been talking about in the letter of Philippians, one, one of those verses you've probably heard numerous times, and maybe one of those verses that has incredible meaning to you, verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then he describes what he puts, in, puts his confidence in now. If he put his confidence in the flesh before, he now puts his confidence not in the flesh, but in Christ. His Christ is his confidence. I have two, uh, two points today. Here is the first one. Meaningful confidence is found in Christ through faith. Meaningful confidence is found in Christ through faith. Let's see how Paul speaks to this. Uh, let's start in verse 3, if you're looking at Philippians 3. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But Paul first tells the Philippians what meaningful confidence is not. It is not confidence in the flesh. Now briefly, what does he mean when he says we are the circumcision? That could be a little bit confusing to us. But what he's saying is the, the circumcision are those who are found in Christ. The way he's using it here is a circumcision that's not an external circumcision. It's not a mark on the external body. body. It's a mark on the heart. It's an internal circumcision. It's one where the heart has been cut and marked by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying true believers in Christ put no confidence in the flesh they put no confidence in created things instead of the creator. Confidence in the flesh is man-centered and self-righteous. It's man-centered and it's self-righteousness. And then Paul goes on to describe who he was and what he did before Christ saved him on the road to Damascus. 
And what he's doing here, he's painting the picture, he's painting a, a very uh, a apt picture of what it looks like to put your confidence in the flesh. This picture of uh, Paul's right pedigree and right performance. You see that he was a Jew from birth, so he was born into the right family, he was born into the right nation, he was circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin, which had a history and legacy of being a distinguished tribe of Israel. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, so he definitely knew his scriptures. What Tom Brady is to NFL quarterbacks, Paul was to Jewish religious leaders. Uh, you might say that he was the GOAT. If there was a power ranking every week of Pharisees, he would be number one. Now, this is what he's trying to say. The, the, you think these Judaizers are going to come in and have anything on me. No, no, no. Look at, look at who I was. Look at what I did. He even says, with zeal, I persecuted the church. I was blameless. I was excellent. I was, a, I was above reproach when it comes to obeying the Mosaic law. Now, I want to pause a little bit, and what we might be tempted to do in a passage like this that's referring back to the Old Testament and the law, we might be tempted to think that the law uh, is bad, that the law was wrong. Chris just talked about this as we read uh, Psalm 119, and then the psalmist says the law is good, it's sweet, it's gold. So the law is not a bad thing. The law was good, it is good. The law never pointed anyone to confidence in the flesh. So what's going on here? If the law does not point anyone to have confidence in their flesh, what was Paul doing? Well, the thing is, is that God's word is always good, but the way that we interpret God's word can be bad. And the way that Paul interpreted the law of God was bad. If Paul could have achieved righteousness by keeping the law and maintaining external observable moral behavior, then he would have had no need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. This, this actually is the very meaning of self-righteousness, that he thought he, by obeying the law perfectly, could achieve righteousness on his own. But then we have the, the beautiful words beginning in verse 7. And Paul says, what he thought was meaningful confidence is actually meaningless. Meaningless confidence is found in man through laws and works, and now Paul knows that it's meaningless. He considers it all lost compared to gaining Christ, to being found in him, and to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul knows that righteousness, again righteousness meaning right standing before God, is from God in Christ. Through faith. That's meaningful confidence, friends. Not, not in ourselves, not in anything other than Jesus. Our confidence that we are saved is through faith in Christ by grace. Our confidence brings us closer to Christ. The author of Hebrews reminds us that we are forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ in order to enter into the holy throne room where Christ is. We have confidence to go there even now. We are saved and we are safe in Christ. I would argue that the most wicked trap 
that Satan lays for people is thinking that they can be saved into heaven by being a morally good person, by getting at least a passing grade on the Ten Commandments. This is honestly one of the hardest things to see happen to people. Those who think they have more in the good column than they do in the bad column, and that they are right before God because of that, and if it's still, I have one more in the good column than I do in the bad column when I die, I'm good. The, the problem is their standard of what is good will always fall short. Because we cannot earn the level of righteousness, we cannot earn the level of goodness that is required to be right with God. This means, this means that it's possible to be against God even as you follow God's moral law. And so it's, it's heartbreaking to watch friends and family trapped and blinded by this. Ones that say, I serve this charity, I give to this organization, I pay my taxes on time every year, I haven't cheated on my wife, I'm a kind person. These are the kinds of things said on the road to destruction. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly because there are several people very close to me who think this way. There are several people who I love dearly who are trapped and blinded by this. Before the road to Damascus, Paul thought he was a really good person. And if Jesus had not stopped him in his tracks, Paul would not be in heaven as he is now. The most well-meaning, upstanding men and women can also be the most self-righteous. Literal self-righteousness that puts confidence for salvation into the flesh. Into man-made reasoning. Into being moral. And into everything but God who stands ready to lavish the riches of grace and make dead hearts come to life. My hope every week, and, and I hope you know this, but as, to be as explicit as I can. My hope every week when we open the word of God and I stand before you and with as much faithfulness as I can because of him unpack what is happening in the text my hope is every week that the gospel is communicated as clearly as it possibly can. Sometimes the gospel is explicitly in the text like it is this morning. And I'm so grateful for mornings like this because right now the gospel is coming to you like a beacon. It's coming right at you like a bright light. Do you see it? You see it in this text. Christ is our righteousness, friends. Christ is our righteousness. We receive him through the gift of faith. A faith that believes the gospel. Jesus slain for us. Jesus raised for us. A faith that brings us into a knowledge of Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. Christ, our righteousness, our right standing before God, justified in his sight, found in him now and forever. We are carried by him through suffering and death and into eternal resurrected life. This is the incredible power of the life-giving spirit of Christ. So here is the invitation as clear as I possibly can make it today. Will you leave the meaningless and empty ways of legalism and self-atonement of trying to be good 
And will you put your confidence in Jesus Christ, our Lord? Will you worship him by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus? That's the invitation. And it's not mine. It's his to you. Friend, if you don't know him, this is the invitation to you this morning. Stop trying. Stop trying and receive the gift of grace from Jesus Christ. Here's the second point this morning. Meaningful confidence grows through knowing Christ. If meaningful confidence is found in Christ through faith, it grows through knowing him. That confidence can grow as we know Jesus Christ more and more. So confidence is sure and steady on the first day that the Spirit opens your heart to receive him. And then it can grow. Your confidence can grow over time. And from the passage, I see four primary ways that we can know Christ and draw closer to him. We can know Christ by rejoicing in him, by rejecting false gospels, by receiving his sufferings, and by reveling in resurrected life. First, meaningful confidence grows through knowing Christ by rejoicing in him. And of course, that goes back to verse 1 that we talked about at the very beginning that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul has talked about joy and rejoicing in this book of Philippians over and over again. It's a major theme. Uh, It's a joyful letter. If you were just kind of to give the overall tone of this letter to the Philippians, you would probably say it is a joyful letter. He prays with joy for the Philippians. He prays for the Philippians' joy. He asks that their unity be complete. In completing his joy, he would ask that they would rejoice in service, that they would rejoice even in their suffering. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then he says, I love this, he says, it's no trouble to me to say these same things. And it's safe for you. It's probably better translated, uh, the ESV, uh, which is the the translation I'm reading from, says it's safe for you. It might be better translated, it's a safeguard for you. What do we think of a safeguard? Something that's going to protect us from evil. Something that's desiring to hurt us. So the question is, how is joy a safeguard? Why is Paul saying, I can say this, 10,000 times today, and it's safe for you to hear it. Why? Joy is the fruit of meaningful confidence in Christ. And like a fruit, it grows in the life of a believer to keep away threats to joy. So you might say it builds on itself. As we, as we find ourselves in Jesus Christ, as we uh, grow in him and know him, that fruit of joy continues to grow might have started off as a little bud on the vine, and now it's growing as we respond to Christ. It keeps away threats to our joy. Threats like grumbling, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Threats like disunity. Threats like legalism that we're talking about in this text. Friends, there can be no other response than joy when we are able to know Christ and his gospel. What other response can we possibly have to the riches of grace and the love of Jesus Christ? 
What other response but joy can we have as we get to know and grasp more of the height and depth and length and width of the love of Jesus Christ? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice in the Lord. Keep rejoicing in the Lord. It's a safeguard for us. It is safe for us to talk often about joy. It's a safeguard against lies and disunity and grumbling. And and that brings us to the second way that we know Christ by rejecting false gospels. We know Christ by rejoicing in him and by rejecting false gospels. And that's exactly what he talks about in verse 2. Again, you see that those who are interested in preaching lies are desiring to tell people, tell the Philippians, how one gains righteousness. And these dogs and evildoers are the Judaizers, as we talked about earlier, that that claimed that the Gentile converts needed to have a mark on their bodies, the mark that the Jews had on their bodies in order to have true faith. Now, if if you've read through parts of the New Testament, and even here at City Church, uh, I know that for several weeks you guys were in the book of Galatians, And Paul talks a lot about this in Galatians. In fact, there's a part of Galatians when Paul, uh, the the heading in the ESV is opposes Peter, his friend, the apostle Peter, uh, the one who knew Christ, the one who was with Christ. And and the reason that he stands opposed to Peter in the book of Galatians is that Peter was was nervous about uh, what it means to have uh, faith in Christ by grace alone. He was starting to drift back to, uh, in order to have true faith, you need Jewishness added to it. He was trying to force Jewishness on the Gentiles, and it was anti-gospel. It was anti-gospel, and that's why Paul called him out on it. It's Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. You don't need, you don't need any writers to this insurance policy. You, have, you take out an insurance policy, sometimes you can get a rider. You don't need to buy any additional coverage. Christ is the policy. Christ is the policy, he is the protection, and he's paid for it in full. He's paid for it. The fact that you want to even pay for any of it is a rebellion against him. It nullifies the gift that it is. Third, We know Christ by receiving his sufferings. Skip down uh, to verse 10. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If you were with us uh, week one as we studied Philippians, do you remember the word koinonia? Remember we talked about this Greek word which essentially means fellowship? Uh, So it means uh, kind of the the participation or partakers of grace in the gospel. Uh, That's what Paul was referring to in chapter 1 when he talked about the Philippians being a koinonia, a friends. And the same word is used here, that we are to have a fellowship with Jesus' sufferings, a koinonia. It's incredible to think about what what this even means. Paul's already talked about suffering a bit in the book of Philippians, that uh, we are to anticipate suffering, that we are to rejoice in the midst of suffering, and even that we would see suffering as a gift. And so if we're doing those things, if we're able to see suffering in that way, then 
then it is a fellowship with Jesus Christ in his sufferings. And here we see it's the very means in which that we know Christ. It's not only that we have fellowship in his sufferings, but that's actually how we know him more. That we know Christ in suffering. We walk behind our king in his suffering and afflictions and even into his death. I was uh, reminded this week that one of my main jobs as one of your pastors is to help you die. One of my main jobs is to help you to die. And that's, that's not fun to think about. It's not exciting. We're not going to put that on a poster, probably. But the question is, how do you need to die this morning? What is it that you need to die to this morning? We know that dying is the only way that we gain life. It's the only way to life. We don't die to ourselves to stay dead. We die so that we might be raised to new life. We are submerged in his baptism. We go underwater in his death, and then we come out of the water in life. And that's point number four, that meaningful confidence grows through knowing Christ by reveling in resurrected life. By reveling in resurrected life. Paul's just mentioned the power of his resurrection, and then our final verse this morning in verse 11 He says that he may attain by any means possible the resurrection from the dead. This is the pattern of life. Lay down to sleep. Arise to wake. A seed dies in the ground. Fruit comes to life above. Winter, then spring. A blank canvas then a beautiful painting, Good Friday, then Easter, suffering, then glory, death, then life. Believer, do you know that you are able to revel in resurrected life today? Sometimes we think about the resurrection and we're too future-oriented. Of course, our Our hearts long for Christ to return when we see him with our own eyes and we're able to physically be with him. But we can live resurrected life today. We know Christ because we are alive in Christ. As Paul says in other places, we live today in heaven by the Spirit. And we will talk next week, we will see in the text that our citizenship is in heaven today. And so we are with him spiritually today, but when he returns, we will be with him spiritually and physically. This is our hope. This is our imperishable inheritance. What grace is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and joy? In joy, in his death, and in his resurrection. This is the miracle of God saving and adopting and sanctifying and glorifying a people, a bride, This is the miracle that that this is. This is not tinkering on the edges. This is not trying to do as good as we can in our flesh, thinking that we're generally a good person. This is not a little work here and a little work here. This is new birth. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, no, no, no. 
You must be born again. You must be born again. Believer in Christ, we have been rescued from putting our confidence in the flesh. So we can read a passage like this, glorious passage, know the truth of this passage, believe it in our minds, and yet in our hearts, where does it go? Where does it go? We can read about Paul's life and say, well, that's not me. That's not how I act. I would contend that our pull back into legalism is actually very strong. At least in my life, I could stand here this morning and proclaim that my confidence is in Christ alone, through faith, by grace, but then it's very possible that I will go through the rest of my week as a functional Pharisee. Sinclair Ferguson, a famous pastor and theologian, calls this having an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. This is trusting in something else besides Christ. This misplaced confidence in our own law-keeping to earn God's favor is deeply ingrained in us. It doesn't go away easily. Now this is, again, different from knowing that the law is good. The law is good. It actually shows us, the law shows us the best way to live in Christ. But we can only attempt to see God's law as a rule of life because Christ kept it perfectly on our behalf. Chris said this a minute ago. Only because Christ is the perfect law keeper can we rejoice in the law being a guide for our life, a rule of life. But the danger is still thinking that we must do or be something extra to merit God's grace and righteousness. That is the danger. When we do this, we believe the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3, that God is stingy, he doesn't take care of us, he doesn't take care of all of our needs, and so we need to take matters into our own hands. That's what's happening when we believe that lie that we must add to Christ's righteousness. And of course, this is not just about our relationship vertically with the Lord. This plays out in how we relate to one another, does it not? How we interact with one another if we have evangelical heads but legalistic hearts. I'm going to read a passage from Luke. This is a parable that Jesus gives his people and the Pharisees who are standing there. This is a pretty well-known parable. This is Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, talks about this passage, and he says, the original hearers would have been shocked. They would have been stunned that the tax collector 
was the one considered righteousness. And we too today should be shocked because as he says, evangelical Christians may existentially have more in common with the Pharisee than the tax collector. Do you see his point? How many more times in my heart do I look down on another Christian and their sin or that I make, might make much of my devotional life and think God favors me more because of it or secretly treat others with contempt because of choices that they have made and I have not? Ferguson goes on to ask, so when did you last beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Friends, what are the ways that our hearts are clinging to confidence in the flesh? How are we sinning by trying to earn God's favor? And how are we sinning when we do that by not loving one another? Where do we tend to say in our heart, thank you that I am not like these other Christians who do blank. Thank you that I'm not like those Christians who wore a mask or who didn't wear a mask. Or thank you that I'm not like those Christians who got vaccinated or who didn't get vaccinated. Who voted for Trump or voted for Biden. Who send their kids to public school or homeschool their kids. Thank you that I'm not like that brother who struggles with pornography. Thank you that I'm not like that sister who lets her kids do that. It's ugly. It's ugly. It's ugly when we're not operating on the same love and grace that we have in Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Anything besides our Savior Jesus that we point to in our life and say, this is what I can stand on in God's presence, is rubbish. It's rubbish. Whatever perceived advantage or insight you are putting your confidence in ends up being meaningless and so we need to examine our hearts and when we examine our hearts we need to look out for the dogs because they're there a life worthy of the gospel puts confidence in Christ alone as we close friends the love of God compels us this is grace that whatever gain Christ had in being co-eternal with Father and Spirit and glory, he considered loss for the sake of redeeming you. Jesus counted equality with God loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you as adopted brothers and sisters. Jesus suffered the loss of all things on the cross to gain his resurrection. And he offers grace instead of demanding merit. He gives us his righteousness instead of righteousness that we try to earn. This, this is our confidence. He gives us himself. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are stirred to gratitude. We are stirred to rejoice in you that this is the truth. That this is our confidence in Christ alone. We could bring nothing to the table. And in fact, we wanted to bring nothing to the table in our dead hearts. And yet you came for us. You opened our hearts to receive the truth that your love and grace is what saves to the utmost. And so we are grateful this morning that we can walk in newness of life, that we have died with you and that we've been raised with you 
and that we have eternal life with you. Father, will you forgive us where we try to go backward? Will you forgive us where we try to add to that? Will we try to have our right standing in the choices that we make or the families that we came from or the, or the own uh, wisdom and intellect that we have? May we see where that we have dogs and evildoers and those that want to mutilate the flesh in us, that we would put that to death and that we walk by grace, affording that same love and grace to our brothers and sisters and being confident in this good gospel that we share with a dying world, a world that so often is trying to save itself by just being good and moral and having no relationship with Jesus Christ. Will you save this morning? Father, would you be pleased to save? Thank you so much for your word. We love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen.